There have seen moments of actually cycling down the street on my company Boris bike, whooping because we've landed some deal or, or been to some amazing funeral and you just see this collective effort, monumental, difficult collective effort coming off in a creative, glorious, inspiring way. And that's pretty unbeatable. Personally, for me, I've always had tons of energy and a difficult part of the journey was I literally physically collapsed in the street from burnout. Hello, dear listener. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders, the best place to learn about entrepreneurship from the top. Today's conversation is about death, or more accurately, all the stuff that happens after death. I'm speaking to Dan Garrett, the co-founder and CEO of funeral probate and will company Fair Will. Their mission is to make dealing with death simpler, fairer, cheaper, and more human by taking on the traditional high street funeral providers in the UK. I don't really know of any other industry that was as big and as undisrupted as death before farewell and a few others obviously came along in 2015 but as we know opportunities are nothing without great execution dan and i discuss how you get hiring right what burnout actually feels like and what makes an amazing funeral but if you're anything like me then you'll want to know why someone would be drawn to the business of death in the first place so let's get to it I'll give you the most honest answer which is i don't totally know so i'll tell you my guesses at it so far of why i got really into it there's one really obvious one, which is I live next to a crematorium and you could go out the back of my parents' house and you're in this crematorium. And it was honestly, it's beautiful. So I always had a positive affiliation with, with death and, and the, the world of crematoria. I think the thing that was really formative for me was when everyone always expects me to be an orphan or to have gone through something completely horrible. When I was, when I was about 12 or 13, my, my grandpa died, who's the world's loveliest man. And my mum, who is incredible, amazingly sort of emotionally wise, unshakable, she really, really struggled, like really found it very difficult. And she was still a great, great parent. But seeing my mum go through that, I think always had a really lasting impression on me of, oh my God, you know, this, this is my mum who's been shaken by the loss of someone else. And I think I always really held on to that. It's like, God, this thing is coming for all of us. What can we do to get ourselves better set up so that it isn't as awful as my mum's experience of it? So a bit of a kind of non-linear path to doing funerals and wills and probate, but I went to university and did maths and engineering. Really loved thinking about how things worked and how things were made, but ultimately didn't find that very creative. And then went to the Royal College of Art afterwards and did this amazing course that was split between Tokyo and New York and London. And I spent about six months in Tokyo in a geriatric home where we had this incredible team of sort of design researchers, ethnographers, anthropologists, and we really failed in our job as designers. All we focused on when we were around people, you know, kind of 90-year-old, 100-year-old Japanese people in a care home setting, we just focused on the physical side of ageing, so getting in and out of bed and up and down the stairs, rather than the fact we were surrounded by a bunch of people who were in the last throes of life, who didn't have their friends or family around. We were the people who were trained in, in getting to the bottom of the problems that they were dealing with, and we just didn't even go, we didn't even get close to it. So... When I came back to the UK, I just kind of couldn't shake that idea. And I ended up spending a couple of months in the death industry. So mystery shopped different funeral directors, got a qualification in will writing. And this is while I was still at the Royal College of Art and just thought, wow, this is amazing. This is the biggest consumer industry that's 
been left untouched, not just by technology, but by any kind of customer centricity. And it isn't because it's macroeconomically impossible. You know, it's a, it's a huge market. Everyone interacts with it. It isn't because it's technologically unfeasible. It's because there is this kind of profound human aversion to talking about and thinking about death. And that, to me, has these amazing components of this, you know, ridiculous, outdated Victorian industry. Everyone couldn't imagine their local funeral director. And this amazing opportunity to help people at one of the most difficult moments in life. Can you give us a, like, a bit of a scope? What happens at death? What's the usual experience that you think is so terrible? Um, also, I'd love to just layer in, like, it's different in different cultures as well, right? So like, what is the de facto? And then how do like different religions and cultures also factor into what like the normalised experience of this actually is? Yeah, completely. So you're, so you're right, it is different in different places around the world and it's different culturally inside the UK. On the funeral side of it, it's still vast majority high street based and pretty old fashioned. So the average cost of organising a funeral has pretty much doubled in the last 10 years for no observable reason. And whether it is wills or probate or funerals or any aspect of dealing with death, it all suffers from the same problem, which is we don't have kind of productive ways of thinking about it. It's, you, know, you just kind of ignore it, bury your head in the sand. And as a result, there's been so little demand on innovative services. So in all three of those products, it's very much dictated by the tradition behind it or the process of you know, going through one of those things rather than what do people actually need at that point in time. So often what we find is, especially when you're grieving, the psychological experience of it and the neurological experience is your amygdala, your hippocampus basically just shuts down. It's really difficult for you to make decisions when you're dealing with grief. And you will just go to a high street funeral director and end up paying loads of money for something that you don't necessarily want. So when you do these things really well, you can make, especially the funeral, this really positive experience. And that doesn't mean that it's you know, full of laughs and that it's really happy and whatever, but you can make it something that is a really useful starting point for the grieving journey that you go through. And when it's done well, it has huge positive impacts on the people who go through it. And when you're just going through the motions of organising a kind of top hat, funeral cortege sort of thing, then uh, we just find it doesn't have the same effect. And so funeral directors, like again, take us through what is the actual experience? So say, sadly, someone in your general population um, that's listening today has a very close family member that's going to pass away. What is, what is typically the problems they're going to go through? The first problem is you just have no idea what to do. If it's the first death that you're dealing with, you're like, I really have no idea what to do and your brain isn't working properly. So because there's so little brand awareness about, okay, here's my options, here are the different things that I can do, often what people will do is you, you walk past your high street funeral director 10,000 times and you'll go there confused and you'll go through a laminated book of what your different options are and you'll walk out having organised something that kind of, you know, just ticks the boxes of we'll do one in the local crematorium and everyone will be smartly dressed and we'll order this coffin and some flowers. And, you know, in London, that's £6,000. Around the UK, it's £5,000 without the extras put into it. And the challenge of organising this event as well, where you need to get loads of people, you don't necessarily have their, you know, contact details or whatever to turn up to someone's funeral and you have to think through, okay, how do I do the eulogy? How do I remember them? And there's so little support beyond how to navigate the, you know, which coffin do I choose and which flowers do I choose. 
And I think that's where we've been able to do things really differently. We've been able to ask people and kind of take people through an experience of, of creating what is the sort of perfect funeral for them and the right way to celebrate that person's life. Got it. Okay. So you're there um, having come off the back of an experience in Japan where there's like this insight. You've come back and like weirdly, despite being an art student, decided to go and get yourself a qualification in will writing. Like what next? Start a business or start like managing funerals for people? Like what, what even, because this is your first business, no? Yes, this is my first, well, this is sort of my first business. I used to sell ties that I bought in job lots on eBay, but I don't know if that will go down in history as a great business success. So yeah, you're right, it was my first business. I wasn't intending to start a business. The way it got started was actually in the, so in the Royal College of Art, you, there's this sort of final year show and 80,000 people go to it, amazing sort of paintings and sculptures. And with my co-founder, Tom, we built the first version of Farewell that was this kind of really nicely done, simple website. So it was kind of, it's basically in an art gallery and people could come in and you could make a will in a couple of minutes. And the thing that we really tried to do differently in that was, and you have to remember, this was basically an art project, it's like a design project. We really wanted people to not just treat it as an exercise in legal compliance, but to actually think through, okay, I'm dealing with death here. This is words from beyond the grave. What do I care about in terms of looking after the people who I really love? And the key metric that we put in our art project was what percentage of people are including these sorts of personal messages, funeral wishes, rather than just, you get a bit of my house and here's where my life insurance policy goes. So in this art gallery setting, we had hundreds of people queuing up to use our prototype, which is really exciting. And we had 80% of people putting in the most amazing heartfelt things inside their wills. I've got a couple of the, the really early ones from the early days. There were some really funny ones. Like I remember one of the first ones that was ever made from a customer who just, you know, we didn't know who the person was at all. They had left a thousand pounds to their colleagues in their will and they wrote, buy a box of chocolates for everyone in the office apart from Carol in HR. And it was just like, you know, the spite that comes through in that I thought was fantastic. But actually it's the really, truly emotional ones that have always stayed with me. There was, I'll read this out, and we have permission to share this rather than being a horrible violation of this person's... Um, uh, yeah, so this is a guy writing to his two kids in his will. Boys, yup, I'm a goner. You've both given me the best memories that any father could ever wish for. You've made my life complete. Now one last favour from you both, please. Wherever you think the best holidays were that we had, please both go together back to the top two or three destinations and scatter my ashes on the beach so that the tide comes in and takes me out and I may endlessly travel on the waves. So whenever you go to the coast, just look out to sea and I'll be there. That's nice. There's, there's one I always loved as well from a guy who collects fossils, who left his fossil collection to his wife, left a message that said, these are millions and millions of years old. I loved being able to hold them and marvel at the age and intricacy of our universe and the short, sharp beauty of our lives. I love the living mine. I love you. I think that moment for me of building something that real people were using that had fundamentally changed the experience of going through it was when it went from being art project to being something that I really believed could be transformative in an industry. And, you know, since then we've, we've grown to be by far the biggest will writer in the UK. NPS is through the roof huge trust pilot scores and I think it's because we didn't approach it as lawyers we approached it saying rather than ignore the fact that you're dealing with death here 
lean into it and make sure that people are taking care of the bits that actually really matter to them. Yeah, I mean, if you approach the problem from a human way, A, that's the fastest way to remove lawyers from the situation. So that's good news. And B, you can totally see how you do innovate an industry just by connecting on an emotional level. Because like you said, this is like an entirely process-driven X gets Y percentage of Z property kind of scenario. Actually, there's so much more to the experience. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Let's talk about that then. So you've gone from art project with a co-founder. Like, how, how do you meet a co-founder? Just at art school? So there were three of us who started the project at the World College of Art. Me, my two amazing friends, Corraldo and Anton. And very quickly... Corraldo, Cor- pretty cool name. Corraldo uh, Kajanaku, even cooler name. Um, he's from Albania, grew up in the US. Absolutely fantastic designer. Most recently he's been redesigning, redesigning the interface for the fire brigade in New York of like how their fire trucks work, which is a pretty fun project. Um, Corraldo just had to go back to the US for up to his eyeballs in debt. Anton went off to start a different business called Flock that's doing really well. It's kind of an insurance company. And Tom, who's a really old friend of mine who I went to, did my undergrad with, who was a really close friend of mine. We were living together at the time. He was a software engineer at a company called Bumpf that printed Instagrams on marshmallows. So he's a mission-driven man through and through. And Tom built the first version of Farewell. So it kind of was like, you know, the art project side was me, Tom, Corraldo and Anton. And from there quickly, it was uh, just me and Tom. So one of the things the Royal College of Art is really good at is having industry connections. So rather, particularly in the course that I was doing, it wasn't just, you know, create a poster about 
what would the world look like if you know we all had wheels instead of legs it was very much how do you take creative work and make it really valuable to people in society so in our final exam where i was literally pitching farewell as a business was wendy tan white who's a fantastic investor and entrepreneur yeah who started moonfruit and joe white her partner and I think I was probably the first person I'd met who was at all related to VC. And then when we did our final show at the Royal College of Art, we had these incredible design leaders coming around and interacting with what we were doing, from James Dyson to the founders of IDEO. And we met a couple of people who were in VC who were like, hey, this is interesting, we should talk. We ended up raising from three angel investors, we raised £30,000. And I remember going, me and Tom going to the cash point, like setting up the company. We went to the cash point and put the thing in. And we were just looking at this number being like, we were like swimming in money. This is the most unbelievable thing ever. Me and Tom ate the same sandwich every day together called El Clasico, which was just a baguette with spinach in it, nothing else. And we was like, we, I think one of the things we were most incredible at was the level of frugality was like truly off the charts for years, in all honesty. And... We had an intern called Mikkel. Um, my friend Sarah was our first designer. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing. Some of the initial versions of our product were like truly beautiful. The most beautiful websites you've ever seen with the worst UX ever. And then we just kind of kept on going. And there's so much luck in this stuff. It's really interesting. But, but basically, Tom's old company, Mint Digital, which was kind of a startup of really early like startup factory, and they ran Bumpf and a, and a number of other things. When Tom left, they said, "Come and work in our office," which is incredibly generous of them. And we ended up sitting next to some VCs who were also just they just started their fund, Tracy and Layla from Kindred Capital, and I was doing some of like you know designing their website a bit, and they were saying, "Here's all the stuff that you don't know about." startups and they ended up leading our seed round and Tracy's still the chair of our board now and that's just because we were sat next to them in in an office I mean Tracy has still has been absolutely phenomenal but you know there's there is so much like serendipity in this stuff there is no chance I'd be where I am now without Tracy basically kind of mentoring me through it Mm. So, okay, so you, you've got a little bit of luck. And I think it's important that like, that's always, that's always a factor. Um, so you're sitting next to a VC, they end up leading your seed round, like how much did you raise? What was the pitch at the time? How much of that do you think you actually fulfilled to the next stage? Really good question. I actually looked at the deck the other day that we raised on. We're definitely still working on the same mission to change the way the world deals with death. I think we raised £255,000 and we had some great angel investors in there as well. So Alex Chesterman, who started Love Film, Zoopla, now runs Kazoo. Errol Damelin, who started Wonga, had some really fantastic investors. Did he lend you the puppets from the campaign for yours? Sadly not, but I may still ask. And, you know, like Wonga gets short shrift, but it was really basically the first fintech company. And from a product standpoint as well, they focused everything on convenience. Like the, sli- the, the UI slider of Wonga of like how much money do you want to borrow and stuff is like, it's exceptional product design. And I think what I've always had is a, a bit of a amorphous moving bunch of advisors and mentors. And it's changed over time. But some people like Tarvet from TransferWise is an investor. Rich Pearson from Headspace, who's just been 
like is an investor, but also just the most amazing mentor to me. I think whenever I come up against a problem that I haven't seen before, it's how quickly can you speak to five people for 10 minutes who've been through something similar? Because there's never a right answer, but it's just a bit of a pinball machine of, okay, right, well, if this, then that, build up a bit of a perspective so you can make a decision quickly. Okay, so take us through the journey because we sort of keep stop, stopping and starting a little bit, but take us through a snapshot of the journey. So from you raise your seed round, so remind us how much you raised and uh, you, you've given us a little insight. Like how much have you raised in total through what kind of rounds? What are like your major milestones? Because obviously you're still in the thick of the journey. Um, so what are the milestones that you're like comfortable sharing to give us like a, an idea of not just how big your business is and like how fast that's grown over what time, but also what it represents in terms of the space you're in? Yeah, totally. So first, I mean, like really early days, first milestone is like someone bought a will from us who none of us knew. And we were thinking, who is this lunatic? Like who would do that? Who would make a will on a website you never heard of? That was a really big deal. I still think about that often. I think raising the seed round was just like, this is crazy. We went to the cash point again, put it in, it was like you know, 270 grand or something. We were like, oh my God, what do you do with this money? It's out of this world. We started off pretty early on working with Macmillan, the charity, doing uh, legacy fundraising. So it's like raising money through gifts and wills. And it was this, you know, I had no idea what I was doing in terms of partnerships, but we formed this amazing partnership with Macmillan that still carries on today. We've helped to raise over £450 million in pledged gifts to charity through our wills. But landing that first partnership, seeing that first gift in a will to the charity was like, wow, this could be so impactful. The goal for us is really to get to like 10 billion pledged to charity, which is a massive amount. In the UK in total, there's 3 billion a year that goes to charity. So per year, we're generating 10, 15 times what Comic Relief does in money that ends up going to charity. So that's such a kind of mark of pride for us and our team. So learning that first partnership, then... So we decided to launch a probate business, which is all the legal and financial stuff you need to go through when someone dies, because we had we were writing so many wills that people were coming back to us saying, hey, this person's actually died, they've made a will with you, can you help with probate? We had enough of that. We were like, okay, I think we could do this ourselves. So launching a second product was pretty mega. After that, the really interesting thing was inside our wills, because we had this really emotional connection with our customers, on top of leaving gifts to people and saying, okay, here's, you know, here's this thing and here's how I feel about you. People also, we created this sort of design interaction around how people wrote in their funeral wishes. And we had tens of thousands of amazing descriptions of what someone wanted their funeral to be like. And one in a hundred of them was anything like the traditional funeral industry. They were all, you know, I want to have champagne on top of the South Downs. So I want to eat chicken nuggets on a beach. Those are real examples. And... I want it to be colourful, I want it to be a celebration of my life. And it got to a point where we had this sort of, you know, ticker tape, qualitative feedback about what funerals people wanted, that we were like, we should start a funerals business. It makes, you know, if this is what people want and it's not what they get when they go to the high street, then we're really well placed to do it. So in December 2019, we launched our funerals business focusing on direct cremation, which is a cremation that no one attends. So, you know, pick up the body, cremate the body, hand deliver the ashes back to the family, and then the world is your oyster. So rather than being constrained by going to your sort of municipal cemetery, you can do it where you want it, how you want it, when you want it, and it opens up so much possibility to do that better. So 
I think the first funeral customer was a massive milestone because it was a lot of work to get it to get it there. We raised our Series B last year. It was twenty million pounds. Raising the Series A with Tim Levine at Augmentum was was a huge milestone. I think we raised seven million pounds. That felt like, oh my god, we're sort of really off to the races. And then last year, raising twenty million pounds with our top choice investor as well was just fantastic. I still. I'm sure you get the same feeling of just like, when did this become an actual real thing? That's a pretty big deal. But it's also, I read every single Trustpilot review that comes through. I read all the messages that come through from Wills. That's the stuff that, that like, I love, absolutely love it. One of the things I've been doing recently with, with part of our kind of funeral operations team is we're just going to a funeral every couple of weeks. And that's been absolutely amazing to see it in action, what we're helping people to do, and then have families coming to you saying, you know, you've helped us so much, it was absolutely incredible, it's just brilliant. So we do direct cremations. So we have logistics partners all around the UK, and when someone calls us, we take them through the process of what needs to happen, what the forms are, and the rest of it to actually carry out uh, a cremation, which is quite technical, but we do a lot of the work ourselves. And what we do next is we pick up the body, either from a hospital or from someone's home or from a care home. We bring the body into our care. Then we arrange a date to carry out the cremation without anyone attending. So we use crematoria all around the UK. And the way we do it really drops the price down for the person paying on the other end of things. And we just won low-cost funeral provider of the year. On average, our direct cremations cost £1,095 versus an industry average for funerals of about £4,000. So it's a huge difference. And there's a good mix of our cust- from our customers of people who are, you know, really don't have the money to pay for a funeral. And we can do stuff with the you know, Department of Work and Pensions or they can come to us directly and we can help them to finance it. Or people who just say, I don't want to spend any more money than necessary on this because I want the money to go on celebrating my life or I want the money to go to my kids to do X, Y, and Z. So we basically carry out the process of the cremation, get the ashes back to the person, and throughout that process, we help them explore what the options are for organising a funeral. So I can can talk about one that I went to recently that was absolutely phenomenal. So it was a direct cremation, and all of the attention went on creating this amazing celebration of this woman's life. It was a two-day event in a field, people camping in tents, people writing memories of her on cards, reading them out. It was incredibly special. And then having a party. And the feeling that you had... So so the psychological experience of grief is basically someone dies and you lose all of the connection and love that you have with that person in an instant. It is the most awful, isolating thing that you can ever go through. There's something called the Holmes and Ra stress scale, basically rates all the different things you can go through in your life. Out of 100 is losing a spouse or a parent or a best friend. It is the, it's 100 out of 100, the worst thing you ever go through. And what a great funeral can do is bring back some of that connection that you have with someone. So by having everyone here in this amazing funeral saying, this is what this person did for me in my life, hearing the stories about how many different people were affected by this amazing person, it was like really brought her back to life. And you could see what a difference it made to the family. And then the next day, it was on top of the South Downs 
singing, scattering the ashes. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful, so completely her and was unlike anything you would see in the traditional funeral world. And by untethering it from, right, you've got to be in your local cemetery, you open up these possibilities. So the onus on us is, is really to hold someone through that process and to give them an idea of, of what the different opportunities are for saying, yes, this person has died, but they're going to carry on being a part of my life. So it's really, it's an emotional job and it's an emotional thing to be a part of. Yeah, but each one of those is just a fantastic, fantastic thing to be able to see. Yeah, it must be super rewarding. And I guess like just thinking through then the the word of mouth, right? So I guess the other thing is the, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit about how your go-to-market, how you grew, like how your, how your marketing works in general. But ultimately, if most people go to a funeral and they're all kind of the same experience, there's not really much to think about. If you suddenly go to something like that, I'm assuming that almost every single participant is asking the organiser where and how this idea came about, what they used, any people. Like, I can just imagine it, like, with just, you know, the idea of being in that environment is the first question that I would ask. Yeah, totally. I mean, we really hold... The standard that we aim for is every funeral, we want everyone... So a big part of it is the participant experience as well. All of us have been to funerals where you turn up, you don't really know how stuff is supposed to run. It's kind of awkward. You want to be there for the person who's having the world's most terrible time, but you have no idea how you're supposed to engage. What we do inside our events is we make it really clear what the expectation is. Of, okay, we want people to be doing this bit collectively. Like This person's going to be doing the eulogy. We help to get people engaged with the process so people know what to expect. And the other part of it is we have a memorial page for each person. And that's been one of the most fascinating design exercises that we've been through of how do you do that thing of getting people to share stories about what that person meant to them in their life. And the interaction on that, it's like, it's like what I was saying right at the beginning of the Royal College of Art. It's the same feeling of we got people saying, leaving these incredible messages. On the funeral side of things now, inside these tribute pages, we get the most amazing, you know, hundreds of people on a page, the most incredible stories shared about this person's life. And, you know, if your husband has just died, that overwhelming feeling of support from everyone who knew them that had these different experiences of that person is, is a real lifeline. So, you know, that's not something that's easy to do in the traditional funeral world, but it is something we've been able to bring to life through our service. So it must be like a very heartwarming and rewarding culture. And I know that when you speak to founders and you ask them about their culture, every founder is going to say, oh, we've got great culture, like great culture is this, great culture is that. Um, so we hear it a lot. Like, let's talk a little bit about your culture then. What do you optimise for in your culture? Has it been like a very purposeful thing? Has it been accidentally put together? And in some senses, I guess the final thing is, it's very hard in some senses to organise a culture around an automated payment solution for restaurants where you have to come up with some big old vision and like, you know, backstop a really meaningful purpose. Whereas you're dealing with end of life and getting these natural customer reviews, I can imagine sort of, it's an assumption, but culture kind of starts to deal with itself when you're working in a space like that. Definitely does. I think you're, I think you're totally right. So there's a couple of things on culture. One is everyone who joins the company is very engaged with the mission. You know, it's not for everyone. Like we're, we're dealing with bodies. I would love to tell you a bit more about what happens behind the scenes in a, in a crematorium, but like yeah, this is people dying. It's very emotionally charged and it isn't for everyone. And we have we get flat out rejections when we reach out to people for jobs being like, absolutely not, this is not for me. So a lot of the people who tend to join the company are 
engaged with this already, whether they've had some personal experience of it or they can just feel the emotional pull of it. And the single most important part of it, and I think this comes from the team early on, is all of us completely brought ourselves to work. We literally didn't have the experience of knowing how to separate our personal lives from our, from our professional ones. And everyone in our team, early days, and I, and I hope that's still the case now, I think it is the case, has, has really been able to bring their full selves to work. So we look for that in the people that we hire. And the feedback that we get on people when they're onboarded into the company is, you know, like, okay, it sounded good. The, the handbook, we have a thing online, if they're called the Little Book of Farewell, that's like our, our culture that you'll probably be able to find if anyone wants to search for it. And it sounds great, it looks really great. You interview everyone, everyone's like, oh, this is a fantastic place to work and you can really be yourself. And then we have people starting being like, okay, I, I actually, I get it now. I can, I can talk about the stuff that I haven't been able to talk about before. I can be really open about it. I can, I can truly be myself. There are downsides to that. I'm too personally invested in the business. I'm sure other people are as well. But I think that's the most unique part of it. It was really interesting. I went to this, it's this thing called Upscale, which is like a government, government thing where they choose some like fast-growing companies and take you off to a hotel and you hang out with other CEOs. It was, it was pretty fun. And I remember we had this amazing talk from Sarah Wood, who was the, one of the co-founders of Unruly. And we were talking about culture. And yeah, everyone's got their culture and all the words and you, like whatever. And we went around the room saying, what's your culture? Where people were like, well, we have five values. And then you'd name the first two of them and sort of like peter off and no one could remember them. And, and I remember Sarah saying, well, we hire pandas. And panda was, was like an acronym for it. And I know this sounds really stupid, but a very actionable piece of advice I took away from that was, that is absolutely fucking brilliant. Having panda, having panda and we hire pandas. And the character in our sort of, in our brand world is called the blob. And the acronym that we have in our culture is blob. So it's like, we hire blobs. And it stands for BU, uh, <laughs> the ultimate fail. It stands for- <laughs> We're keeping that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. The big, the, the big finish. Um, it stands for BU, lean forwards, offer help and bias to action. And having it as an acronym I think really makes sure that it is properly adopted inside the company. You know, so, so just having a Slack channel of like wins, we have wins and blobs basically. And every day there's, you know, 50 messages on that channel of someone saying, okay, someone's done this amazing bit of work and they're biased to action or they've really been themselves in this situation. So, so I think finding ways to institute that in the culture is just so fundamental because everyone can go through the exercise of coming up with the words, but how do you, how do you bake it in, I think is a, is a really important one. And it comes back to hiring. The hiring aspect of how do you hire for culture is, I know everyone talks about it the whole time. It's going to sound bad because it's not supposed to be how you hire, but there is gut instinct in it, especially early days when you, when you don't really know how to do it. Has your hiring process changed from early days to like over the last uh, two to three years? It has, but the fundamentals have stayed the same. So one of the best bits of help I've ever had from an investor, and it was when we were working with Kindred really early on, was they had this incredible woman who was, who was their sort of talent advisor, people advisor called Michelle Coventry, really one of the people who's had the most outsized impact on the company. Obviously, I had no idea how to hire someone, never done it before. And Michelle spent so much time with me and my co-founder teaching us how to hire and teaching us why it was so unbelievably important. And... I'd say your ability as an early stage company to attract 
someone who is well above who you should be able to get into the company on a you know not huge salary is the most important determinant of whether or not you'll be successful. So I think it has become a thing where you know people will use recruiters the whole time, or you just knock out a job spec and you put it live. Like we, when we write a job spec, it has as much care and attention as a kind of rich bit of marketing that we would do. This isn't just asking someone to you know make their will or organize a funeral or something. You're asking someone to take a huge punt on your company, change from their already incredible job if you're hiring the kind of candidates that you actually really want to get in. So that whole experience of creating the job spec, making it really seamless, making sure that if we're hiring senior candidates, I'll do the first calls and that first five minutes of the call, I'm pitching harder than I'll pitch to a VC. So why don't you give us some tips then? Okay, so, so I'd say this maybe applies more to early stage founders or first time founders, but if you don't have a well-developed muscle for spotting talent, then you've just got to put yourself through the ringer on it. And a lot of that starts with LinkedIn skills, which is like literally how do you navigate LinkedIn? How do you reach out to loads of people? And I would say it takes a lot of time. The quicker that you can get to having done your 500th interview, the better. You could say, oh, we'll hire a head of talent or whatever, but you need to develop that muscle of like, okay, I saw this person, they reacted like this. How am I telling the story? And so I would say building lists of people on LinkedIn and doing it the manual way, we always hire as a team. So let's say we're looking to place a role. We'll have a hiring, like hiring as a team sport at Farewell. So you'll have a kickoff meeting. We'll describe what we're looking for in the role, the types of you know, experience that we want someone to have, and agree on an unbelievably short list of the like, hardline criteria, and then some other like, nice-to-have, whatever. We'll come up with some profiles who are the best possible people that we're looking for. And then we'll do a sourcing hour. So everyone in our team is like, trained in sourcing candidates. We'll go through LinkedIn, we'll use our own networks, and we'll build a list of you know, two, 300 people. Then when you're doing outbound, you can use tools to get people's emails. I know that sounds like crafty and evil, but like, it's just, it's just the way it works. Use tools to get people's emails and really bother to explain the company when you're reaching out to someone, not just, hey, we're hiring a product manager. I thought you might want to have a chat, but like, you know, here's what we do. Here's the exact opportunity. A lot of it is also bothering to describe the opportunity. Why should someone take this job? Where are they going to be in a year? What will they have learned when they go through it? And then reaching out to people en masse and just offering time. If you're interested, great, let's have a chat. It's expensive in terms of time, but in your first 50 people, every person matters so much when it comes to culture building. So I would really advocate doing the like hard yards of it, of building big lists, reaching out to people, interviewing, you know, phone screening lots and lots of candidates per week to get a sense of if you've never hired a product manager before, how are you supposed to judge as a first-time founder or early-stage founder what a great PM looks like? And unless you're hiring someone who's like really heavy-hitting and talent, chances are they don't necessarily know either. So building that muscle of recognising great talent, I think, is just so important. And whenever we've gone out to hire a role that hasn't existed in the company before, also that's when I use our investors and our connections to say, who are the three best people in the UK who are product managers or who are product marketing managers or who are, you know, SEO leaders and listening to them describe what makes someone phenomenal at this job, then you're just, you're jumping 10 steps down the road. Coming towards the end of the episode, sadly, because could talk about this stuff for ages and loving, loving so much of the insights. So thank you. I'd like to just touch on, you know, the emotional experience personally as a founder running this business. So 
smooth sailing up and to the right the whole way? Like, how have you found managing your energy, your mental health, like the challenges of leadership? You know, how's that been on you personally? It's really difficult. I absolutely love it. It's the most amazing thing I've ever done. And it's the most awful, horrendous thing I've ever done at the same time. And most people I know will say something similar. Other founder CEOs that I know, a lot of people will have the same sort of issues of, you know, lack of headspace because you're always thinking about work. One that I think is really interesting one is, is memory problems from constantly having, like you're constantly swamped with adrenaline and cortisol. And it's like, apparently, I don't know much about this stuff, but apparently evolutionarily, it's like, oh, imagine you're being chased by a dinosaur. So I'm sure someone will be a stickler for saying that's not possible. But someone's been, you're being chased by a dinosaur and you're a caveman and, you know, you get your brain has access to all this adrenaline and cortisol, it just speeds it up so much and you can think I'm going to, you know, hide under a rock or jump up a tree or whatever it is. And I just found that I've been on such high adrenaline levels, you know, especially doing stuff like fundraising, that what it does is it just shuts down your memory so really having like actual memory problems, but it's also glorious. There are just the moments of, I mean, there's been moments of actually cycling down the street on my, on my company Boris bike, being like, oh, whooping because we've landed some deal or, or been to some amazing funeral and you just see this collective effort, monumental, difficult collective effort coming off in a creative, glorious, inspiring way. And that's pretty unbeatable. Personally, for me, I think... I've always had tons of energy and a diff- really difficult part of the journey was, I mean, I, I just, I literally co- physically collapsed in the street from burnout and I didn't think that was possible. I always just thought it was, you know, is burnout real? No, it's just, it's just, you're just weak, you know, you can't put in enough hours and you can't handle it. And then that was quite a difficult one for me, actually collapsing in the street. Oh God, no, this has happened to me. And I think the extent of the overstimulation from work, of constantly being on, I was clinically depressed and I wasn't sad. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling sad, but I could be having a barbecue with my friends and like drinking in the summer and just doing the funnest things ever, throwing a tennis ball on a bike and drinking vodka and not enjoying it because I was so swamped with the pressure of trying to do all this stuff I'd never done, done before. So that is awful and it's exhausting, but it's also you get to learn so much so quickly. So I'm sure everyone goes through this period of like doing very difficult months, even years of of learning this stuff. And then you kind of come above the clouds every now and again, and it's brilliant. One of the most difficult things for me was last year, actually, and the pandemic, you can imagine the pandemic is, our business was just, there was so much more demand. Death rate was really high. We were operating under really tricky circumstances. We were doing... We did 10,000 wills for the NHS in a week or something ridiculous like that. We had to hire 30 people in 10 days. It was really stressful. It was exciting. But one of the things I never experienced before I started the company was when I'm under just like a lot of stress and pressure, I can just get visibly frustrated. And that was having a really negative impact on the team around me of just being like, okay, well, you know, can you give me some feedback if I'm walking around hot-headed, we don't have time to do this and just constantly frustrated about everything. And my team sort of staged a, almost like an intervention being like your frustration is really getting in your own way here. And what we started doing, that was hard to hear. It was hard to hear that I was coming across to, I really value being a sort of, accessible, open, warm, friendly leader. And to be told that, you know, 
I sometimes honestly could just be coming across as, as like short or angry. And fixing that, I think, has been something I've been really proud of. So every week on a Friday, I'd have this long list of people who get an automated thing being like, please take one minute to give me feedback on this thing. And I wrote it out. It's like I committed to being sort of calm and compassionate and putting other people first. It was basically score me out of five. How have I done on that? And then write any qualitative stuff that you want. And every week, I'd, you know, it's painful getting that feedback if you've made someone else feel bad. But over week by week, I just started making really major progress on it. And I think it's, it's just not something I have to worry about anymore. But... I mean, that was, that was an interesting thing to go through. You realise when you're under stress, like, which gasket are you going to blow? And then how can you fix that? Amazing. Dan, thank you so much for your time today. It's been awesome. Thanks so much for having me. It was a total pleasure. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. That's your best bet. Like when we talk about being ahead of the competition, if you have a clarity, a vision that you stay consistent with and you you have to deviate some but you keep those deviations minimal and you understand why you're doing them and you keep them sort of self-limited that's your best chance it's a race hopefully it's not like the tortoise and the hare you want to be both the hare and the tortoise out in front and steadfast <laughs> that was evan goldberg the founder and ceo of netsuite find out how evan has kept going for 20 years leading a massive company worth billions of dollars and what evan learned from working with oracle's legendary founder larry ellison next week thanks for listening i'm dan murray serta and i was the host of this episode editing was done by lower street media with will stolliman our head of podcast bring it all together